This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flato is away. Later in the hour, we'll talk with primatologist Dr. Jane Goodall about her revolutionary work with the chimps in the Gombe Stream Research Center over 50 years ago. And we'll chat about what issues are most pressing for her today. If you've got a question for Jane Goodall about her work, you can call us. Our number is 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. You can always tweet us at SciFry. But first, ever wonder if environmental policies like the Clean Air Act are actually working? Well, look no further than the Field Museum in Chicago, home to a collection of songbirds from the early 1900s. In a new study, researchers say the soot captured in these birds' feathers provides a picture of the air quality around the Industrial Revolution that's much worse than scientists originally thought. Here to tell us about that, as well as other short subjects in science, is Rachel Feldman. Science Editor at Popular Science. Rachel, welcome back. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. So tell us about what researchers learned about air pollution from studying this old bird collection. Yeah, so basically they were just able to analyze how much soot had been in the atmosphere over a span of about 135 years because they had this collection of the same species of birds that had been collected from the same part of Illinois over that entire period. And it's really cool because it's a reminder of how important natural history museums are. A lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of the collections in a natural history museum aren't on display. They're in unmarked boxes or, at best, labeled drawers uh, somewhere in the bowels of the museum. And researchers are, these days, really poking around a lot to see what old specimens that have been ignored for a lot long time might teach them. So this is just a great example of that. What, what gave them the idea to do this, though, to, to pull off soot from the bird's feathers? Well, so uh, as far as I know, uh, they just had this whole span of birds to look at, and it was really apparent that the birds from 1906 were filthy. They had just been put away covered in soot because that's how all the birds looked at that time. Um, the, the difference is so striking that you would think that there had just been some evolutionary change in coloration, but they were just filthy. <laughs> so it was just that, you know, when looking through their drawers of dead birds, because natural history museums have those, That's it was just <laughs> such a striking uh, spectrum of color that they decided to try to use them for this purpose. I just have to quickly ask, how do they know that these specimens were clean, I suppose, in that they weren't treated with chemicals or washed off? I mean... How do they know that this was, you know, a, a real sample? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I guess it, it could be that they were even filthier before they were put in, uh, which would mean that their estimates uh, were actually conservative <laughs> for how sooty the air was in the early 1900s. Uh, but generally, there are pretty good records, uh, especially if we're just talking about a century ago, uh, for what people did to the specimens before they put them away. It's so interesting. Okay, so our next story, I got to tell you, it kind of stinks. Um, <laughs> scientists say they can explain how durian fruit got so stinky. Do I even want to know the answer to this? <laughs> yeah, it's actually very cool. Uh, so scientists decided to sequence the genome of the durian, which is notoriously smelly. People say it smells like rotting animals or garbage, but it tastes delicious. I wouldn't know, but I've been told. Uh, and they sequenced its genome and found that it's actually very closely related to cacao, which is where we get chocolate and obviously smells very nice. The main difference is that the durian had what's called a genome duplication event, which is what it sounds like. Uh, at some point, a plant mutated and just copied its genome and then had two copies. 
the reason that that's beneficial, especially to plants, is that it gives you an extra set of genes to play with. You can imagine the one set carrying out the functions those genes have to carry out for the plant to survive. The other set can play around with all different mutations. Obviously, some of those didn't pan out, but the ancestor of the modern durian is the plant that happened to evolve stinkiness. Like, really strong stinkiness. But why evolve this extra stinkiness? (laughs) Well, that's the question. Uh, So we know that it has multiple copies of these genes that create sulfuric compounds, which is where it gets its smell. We don't really know why. I mean, I would imagine that... Uh, the smell probably attracts some animals and repels others, which would probably help protect the plant, except when it needs to get eaten and have its seeds spread around. Uh, so I think it was just uh, beneficial on a species-wide level to have this this quirk, and so it just kept happening. It, it's too bad that cacao doesn't smell extra chocolate, <laughs> but that's for another study. So let's move on. Uh, we talk a lot on the show about the role of bacteria in the gut microbiome, but there's a new study about the role of fungi in the gut. I didn't know much about fungi. What did researchers find? Oh, man. I studied mycology in college, so I'm actually a big fungi <laughs> evangelist. Uh, so this is very exciting to me. Uh, the microbiome, you know, we talk about bacteria a lot. It's a very hyped new topic, uh, but... The microbiome includes all microbes, including fungi, and, you know, there are also viruses and parasites in there. And these aren't microbes that are making us sick, just like the bacteria we talk about in our microbiome. These are just a normal part of the flourishing ecosystem in there. So researchers are starting to look more closely at how changes in our fungal microbiome uh, can affect our health or at least relate to our health. So this research is even further... um, It's even more in its infancy than the bacterial microbiome. So we still don't know what a healthy microbiome is. We don't really know how to get one. But we are seeing that our health is connected to these organisms that live inside us. And researchers are going to start looking into this more. Maybe fungus plays a bigger role. Right. And there are definitely way more bacteria in our guts than there are, you know, individual spores of fungi. But uh, they, they do live together. It's an ecosystem. And so you would think that if we care about hacking the bacterial microbiome, we should really figure out what all the other microorganisms are doing, or we might not be able to make the interventions we want to make. I have always wondered if we're living in a computer simulation. I know that uh, a lot of movies, like The Matrix, sort of give you the sense that that's the life we live in. Uh, Has this been disproved now? Are are we not in a computer simulation? (laughs) Well, the reason it's such a fun thought experiment that comes up again and again is that it's really hard to disprove because, you know, if you're living in a computer simulation, how would you possibly know? Um, There is a study that kind of uh, gives a sideways uh, proof that they think, you know, they they think they've proven accidentally that we don't live in a computer simulation. Basically, they were trying to model a very complicated physics phenomenon known as the quantum Hall effect. I won't get into it, but nobody's ever been able to model it on a computer before. They showed that they were also not able to model it. And in fact, they believe they've shown that it would be physically impossible to model this on a computer that we use today, on a classical computer, that it would take more atoms than there are in the universe to store enough information to actually simulate this. Now, presumably, if we lived in a computer simulation, it would have to be possible to simulate all of the stuff in our universe. So they say that proves we don't live in one. Of course, that assumes that our alien overlords or whatever (laughs) are using a classical computer 
and also follow the same physical laws as us. So, so that's the thing. You seem skeptical <laughs> about this. Right. Well, it's, uh, you know, it rules out like the idea that we're just like some other humans version of like the Sims or something. <laughs> but if uh, if someone has a more powerful computer than we've thought up yet or they live in a universe with completely different physical laws, then they could still be matrixing us. Mm, OK, a, a last story for you. And, and this is one that I think is is haunting a lot of us right now. Where's fall? Where's the autumn? <laughs> I mean, it's it's not felt like fall. And you've looked into this. What have scientists told you about why there's no fall this year? Right. So I talked to uh, a lot of researchers about uh, how hot and not leafy it is in New York right now. And uh, basically, researchers are just starting to look at how climate change is affecting fall. They used to focus mainly on spring because the changes are so much more profound and noticeable. But uh, fall is happening later it's staying warmer for longer. And the thing is that, you know, we think about leaf change because it's pretty, but it also signals the end of a tree's growth uh, cycle for the year. So if trees aren't losing their leaves as early as they used to, they might be growing for longer. And that could have implications for, you know, the amount of carbon they're pulling from the atmosphere, or the amount of carbon that's being released in the soil. So there are a lot of aspects of fall that do seem to be changing because of climate change, and it's worth looking into. Uh, looking into at least as much as the spring, which is where people have focused an awful lot, you know, the right. end of winter into spring. Right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for bringing us these stories. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our Rachel Feltman is science editor at Popular Science. And now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side, if you want to spark a debate in a room full of scientists, just mention the p-value or the probability value. When you're studying how two phenomena might be related, a low p-value means that your findings are significant, not just a fluke. But how low is low enough? For years, the p-value threshold was set at 0.05. If your p-value is lesser than that, well, congrats, your findings are significant. If it's greater, not so much. But why 0.05? That's the question a lot of scientists are asking. Many think it's not low enough. Last year, the American Statistical Association proposed lowering the threshold to 0.005. That didn't sit well with everyone. Joining me to talk more about this is Dalmeet Singh Chavla, who's a science journalist based in London. Dalmeet, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me, John. So first of all, why would lowering the p-value threshold be a good thing? Well, what researchers in uh, a manuscript in July argued um, and this includes very um, prominent researchers, they argued that lowering the threshold would reduce the number of false positives being reported in literature. That basically uh, means um, incorre you know, incorrectly saying that an effect exists when it actually doesn't. Um, that was like kind of uh, the main argument. The second main point is that it would um, make it harder for uh, researchers to misuse the p-value. Now, that has become an increasingly... Um, known issue to to um, anyone exploring the literature that increasingly what researchers are doing is instead of having a hypothesis and then collecting data to test it they're collecting data and you know it actively searching for trends um, that kind of are that meet the p-value they want just so they can report it as significant well before we get to the, to the bad side of this I, I have to ask why this number in the first place why did we arrive at this well, 0 0.05, um, funny enough, has kind of existed from the early 20th century. There's no um, 
known particular reason. It's just stayed around by tradition. It's just been passed down from generations of researchers. And, you know, until recently, um, it was just kind of a, 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 a standard way of, of, of judging, um, you know, significance and um, evidence levels of research. And now, you know, in recent few, last few years, as more um, problems with uh, the lack of reproducibility of scientific research is being reported, um, you know, a lot increasing amount of that is due to statistical flaws. And, um, and kind of researchers have, you know, pointed out there's been a sort of a methodological awakening, uh, you could say, in recent years. Mm. So uh, tell us about the bad part then. What, what would be bad about lowering this threshold? Well, lowering the threshold would, um, you know, increase the number of false negatives, uh, essentially in, uh, incorrectly reporting that an, ex- uh, that an effect doesn't exist when it actually does, um, you know, which is the counter-argument for the false positives. Now, the July manuscript researchers uh, acknowledged that, and what they suggested was we raise the sample sizes of like, all experiments by, um, on average, 70%, which would, um, you know, which, which what they say is... Um, that, that would um, ca- prevent the false negatives from increasing, um, at the same time dramatically reduce the false positives that are uh, being reported. But, you know, it, increasing sample sizes by 70% in every experiment is, you know, that only rich researchers or well-funded labs would be able to kind of do that. Um, and, and, all, and also it would excavate and make, make worse what we call the file draw problem or publication bias, uh, whereby studies with negative results are kind of stashed away and not reported in literature, which is a, a well-known issue among academics. Mm. Dalmeet Singh Chavla is a science journalist based in London. Thanks so much for sharing this good thing, bad thing with us. I really appreciate it. No, thanks so much for having me, John. Now, after the break, we're going to talk with famed primatologist and conservationist Jane Goodall. And if you've got a question for her, I know I've got a few, call us at 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Over 50 years ago, Dr. Jane Goodall journeyed into the Gombe for the first time. She entered as an amateur, but when she emerged, her observations from that time would change our thinking about chimps, primates, and even humans. A new documentary called Jane comes out October 20th, and it gives a previously unseen personal perspective of her time in Gombe. Since that time, she's worked to preserve the habitats of chimpanzees and involve communities to balance their own habitats. Dr. Jane Goodall, welcome back to Science Friday. Well, thank you very much. And if you've got a question for Dr. Goodall about her work, give us a call. Our number is 844-724-8255. You can always tweet us at SciFry. Um, you have said that this film, Jane, brings you back to Gombe more than any other movie. To Tell us about that. What, what is it about these pictures that take you back to that time? You know, I've tried to work out what it is about it. I think because it shows more of me as a person and that very spontaneous relationship that developed between me and the chimpanzees. You know, I was able to groom David Greybeard and course those are the kind of things that we absolutely don't do anymore because well we know chimps can catch our diseases and things like that but back then it was a very naive innocent sort of world and the magic of being able to interact with creatures who've been running away from you for for almost a year was something real special and that comes out very strongly in this film you know what else comes out very strongly is the solitude that you must have felt, especially early on, as you were attempting to communicate with or get close to the chimpanzees. Can you take us back to that time, that feeling of kind of being alone in the wild? 
yes, well, that was my dream. I mean, that was that was the best part of it, you know. And there's there's uh, loneliness and aloneness, and they're two very different things. And I was never lonely, uh, although when my mother left, you know, she came with me to start with, and that's shown very clearly in this film, which more clearly than the others. And uh, of course, I missed her for a while when she'd gone. But being alone in the forest, for me, is one of the most magical aspects of, of those days. What was it like seeing yourself as the subject of the film, and, and not necessarily the chimpanzees? Because this film does linger on you as the subject, not, not so much on, on the, the chimps that you were researching. Um, well, I've sort of got used to it a bit. I've written about that, you know, my books, my autobiography. Reason for Hope is pretty pretty honest about who I am, uh, but it was seeing me back then, you know, those images through Hugo's lens and all that amazing photography. Uh, he really was a genius with with uh, making the films that he did. Take us back to the the feeling of the first time that you really made contact with one of the chimps. What what was that like for you? Well, it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was when the the one chimp who began to lose his fear first was uh, a male. I called him David Greybeard because he had a beautiful white beard. I'm not quite sure why David Greybeard, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that came to be his name. And he came into my camp and pinched some bananas. So uh, then I, I asked the cook, Dominic, to put bananas out. I was still going into the hills every single day into the forest. Mom had gone. <coughs> and eventually, um, he began coming fairly regularly. And so I stayed down, got to know him better. And the first time he actually approached and took a banana from my hand, it was like, you know, it was like the stories you read about people approaching uh, uncontacted human tribes. That's how it felt. <laughs> And, of course, then it, it somewhat quickly goes wrong in that the chimps discover that they can get bananas pretty easily by just coming to your camp, and all of a sudden you're, you're hiding behind, behind screens as they, as they ramsack through the place. So what did that feel like? Maybe your experiment gone a bit wrong. Well, it wasn't an experiment, really, and, and it was just the odd banana until <laughs> Hugo came, and then... Uh, you know, geographic sentiment, geographic needed footage out in the forest with chimps who aren't really habituated. He wouldn't have got much. It would mostly have been from a distance. And they're black in a dark forest. So he realized that, ha, the chimps coming into camp will be easier to film. And so he was the one who organized regular feeding. And it did go wrong, and they became very aggressive until we designed these boxes, which which uh, calmed them down and <laughs> stopped the fighting that was going on. But you see, if we hadn't done that, the Geographic wouldn't have gone on funding Hugo to sit getting very little, and the research would have ended. Mm. Well, one of the most touching parts of the film is your relationship with a chimp named Flo and her baby. I guess I'm wondering what you learned about Flo as a mother and about about motherhood through that experience. Well, I learned a lot, uh, and over the years I've learned there are good mothers and not good mothers. There's very few bad mothers, 
just one or two we've known. And Flo was just a perfect example of the very best kind of mother. She was affectionate, protective, but not overprotective, and above all, supportive. And of course, that's what I attribute so much of my own success to, the way mum brought me up, my mother. She, she supported my dream of going to Africa when everybody else laughed at me. Mm-hmm. I was 10 years old at the time. And so finding out that chimpanzee um, offspring who have had a supportive mother have tended to do better, be better mothers, rise higher in the hierarchy if they're males. And so it just stresses the importance of the first couple of years of life and the kind of upbringing that you have. I I should ask you about this because later in our program, we're going to be talking about a study that's taking a close look at baby talk, how humans talk to babies and what we're learning about it. Did you notice that do chimps have a different way of talking to their babies than they talk to other chimps? Uh, No, I don't think. Well, I mean, no, not really. No. But one of the interesting things with the chimp mother child is there's very little need for any sound communication between them because the baby is always clinging to the mother. If the baby is in danger of slipping, the mother feels it pulling on the hair. And if the child's in distress, the mother just cradles it a bit closer. So it's, you know, when you start being separated from your baby, that the need for vocal communication gets much more important. Mm. In the film, you say that in your dreams, you would dream as a man that went on adventures. Why did you dream as a man, do you think? Well, because when I was young, you know, 80 years ago, men did things that girls weren't supposed to be able to do. And so as I wanted to do things like going out in the forest and and living with wild animals, uh, I thought it would be much easier if I was a man. So I suppose that's why I dreamt I was a man. I don't know. Do, do you think often of how your work uh, in the field changed the way that women scientists think and dream about their futures? I didn't think about it at the time, of course. And, you know, when I began, I had absolutely no plan of being a scientist. I just wanted to be a naturalist. And it was Louis Leakey, my mentor, who told me I absolutely had to get a PhD to be properly recognized and to get funding. But at the time when you first went into Gombe... um, you, you were an, an amateur. You, you did not have training. Uh, how do you think that that helped you do the work that you, you and Hugo did together, that you were both new to this and that you didn't have the scientific training of maybe others who would have taken that voyage? Yeah, well, first of all, there was nobody who could have trained me because nobody had done it before. <laughs> that was, you know, the luck. I was sort of out there first. And Lewis Leakey deliberately chose me because he said he wanted somebody who's mind was uncluttered by the, in his opinion, sometimes uh, not good scientific thinking. And, you know, I completely agree with him. So when I got to Cambridge to do a PhD, because he insisted, I was told I couldn't talk about chimpanzees having personalities, minds capable of thinking, and certainly not emotions. You know, I was guilty of anthropomorphism. But fortunately, though I was really intimidated by these clever, clever uh, um, professors at Cambridge. I'd had this wonderful teacher when I was a child, 
who taught me that in this respect they were wrong, and that was my dog. <laughs> you know, you can't share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a bird, a cow, I don't care what, and not know. Of course, we're not the only beings with personalities, minds, and emotions. You said earlier that as you look back on this film, you, you notice all the things that you wouldn't have done now, ways in which we've learned how to interact with chimpanzees that, that obviously no one knew at the time. What are what are some ways in which, as you look back at this film, Jane, that you see something that you do completely differently with all the knowledge that you have today? Well, the only thing that we do differently is to have more sophisticated ways of actually recording the data. Uh, you, you know, you can use electronic gadgets. Uh, when I began, it was a notebook and pen or pencil in the wet season and typing it up at night so that they were very long days. And then we graduated to filling a lot of this stuff in on check sheets and uh, tape recorders. But, you know, the only thing really different today is that we no longer have the banana feeding. We no longer have any interaction with the chimpanzees. But otherwise, the study has really gone on very much the same. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. And we're talking today with Dr. Jane Goodall. If you want to join our conversation, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Um, one of the, of course, first things that you, that you learned that struck the, you know, the psyche of the world was how chimps can use tools like humans. And, uh, of course, they have these very intricate social structures that you observed, all of which kind of made people feel positive about the, not only the relationship between chimpanzee and human, but also uh, about humans uh, ourselves. But you also observed, and I think it's, it's well illustrated in this film, the flip side of that with different groups of chimps fighting, almost going to war and killing one another. Um, do you think that by observing chimpanzees, you learn something about humans and their tendency to war with one another? Yeah, I do, actually. And I remember vividly in the early 70s that this, uh, this consideration of whether aggression is innate in us or learned, and the two sides were fighting bitterly. One, one group of people saying, of course, aggression is innate, it's in our genes, and the other saying, no, no, it's, it's only learned. We have children are born with a blank slate, and it's what we put into that slate that makes them aggressive. And Lewis Leakey sent me because he believed it was an ape-like, human-like creature about six million years ago, uh, from which humans and chimpanzees and the other apes evolved. And his theory was, if Jane finds behavior that's similar in chimps today and humans today, it's possibly come with us through our long evolutionary journeys, and it would help him to better imagine how the early humans, whose skeletons and uh, fossilized remains, he was searching for might have behaved. So uh, I, w I was always very firmly of the opinion that we do have aggressive tendencies, and of course they can be enhanced or, or you know, to even teach a child, you can encourage the child to suppress those aggressive tendencies. Do, do you find us becoming a more aggressive culture? 
well, right now, I think the world is not in a in a very happy state, is it? I mean, when we think of the the terrorism, the terrorist attacks, the bombs, the guns, we think of the different countries where there is actual conflict going on. It's uh, and we think of gangs and gang warfare and bullying in schools and all these other bad aspects of humanity. It's very disturbing, I think. When we come back from a break, we're going to talk more about the work that you're doing today uh, with not only humans, but also around the world to teach conservation. If you've got questions for Dr. Jane Goodall, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Of course, you can also tweet us at SciFry. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flato is away. We're talking this hour with Dr. Jane Goodall. There's a beautiful new documentary coming out October 20th called Jane. It follows her time in the Gombe uh, researching chimpanzees. And if you want to ask her questions, 844-724-8255. Let's go to Christine, who's calling from Baltimore. Hello, Christine. You're on Science Friday. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. What's on your mind? Hello, Dr. Hi, I wanted to say hello to Dr. Goodall and commend her on her amazing lifetime body of work. Um, Dr. Goodall, you're one of my childhood heroes, and um, I am an early childhood educator in Baltimore, Maryland, and my question is I wanted to ask um, what are the most important things that educators can do to um, really get children involved in the ideas of animal science and animal conservation? Well, I think, you know, one very, very important thing is to try and find out what really interests the child. And if the child totally is interested in mechanics and things like that, then I think the, the important thing is to give them a chance to experience nature and I know some children, you know, don't have the luxury of going out into national parks and things. But there's always some earth and some growing things. And, you know, we used to put a seed uh, behind blotting paper in a damp jar and watch the little roots come out between the damp paper and the glass and see the little shoot come and, and watch snails and how do they walk without legs and, gosh, pop them on the other side of a window and watch that rippling movement. I mean, these things fascinate even children who are uh, not particularly interested in the outdoors. Mm. Uh, Christine, but, thank you so much for your phone call. Thank you very much. I, I want to get to one more quick phone call. Mira is calling from Cambridge. Hi there, Mira. Hi, uh, Dr. Goodall. I'm calling to um, salute you for founding the Roots and Shoots Network that provides a platform for young people, for youth to get involved in environmental action in their communities, and also to help animals and people. Um, I had the honor of meeting you in 2008 in China when I worked for Shanghai Roots and Shoots. And after I left um, Shanghai, I took with me um, the program that I worked on called the Eco Audit Program, yeah. in which youth, the youth help businesses reduce their carbon footprint and become more environmentally conscious um, of, you know, in their daily work practices. Mm. And I've since then started it in Delhi, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's uh, soon going to be started in Mumbai. And I want to acknowledge you because 
through Roots and Shoots, you are the inspiring, um, you know, force for this. And it's been very transform uh, transformative for not only the young people, but also the businesses they interact with mm. on this program. So thank you. And God oh, thank you. Thank you for that. It's it's uh, it's a lovely thought, and I think a lot of people who are calling want to uh, maybe have you talk more about the Roots and Shoots program that that does help so many youth, uh, not just obviously here in America but around the world. Tell us more about what it's doing right now. Well, Roots and Shoots was begun because uh, when I learned that chimpanzees were decreasing in numbers and forests were vanishing, and I realized that I had to leave the Gombe that I loved and try and help the chimps. And in learning more about the chimps by going to different African countries, I learned more about the problems faced by the people living in poverty without good health and education. And so that began our program to improve the lives of the people. Otherwise, you can't help to conserve nature and animals. And that takes a lot of hard work and it costs money. So I realized then there's not much point in all of this hard work if we're not raising new generations to be better stewards than we've been. And so Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in Tanzania in 1991 who were concerned about the way animals were treated, poaching in the national parks, destruction of coral reefs with illegal dynamite fishing, street children, all, all sorts of different things, these 12 students. And we had a, a big meeting with their friends, and Roots and Shoots turned into this program where the main message is each individual matters. Each one of us makes a difference every single day, and we can choose what sort of difference to make. It's, uh, each group chooses themselves. We don't tell them what to do. Three projects to make the world better, to help people, to help animals, to help the environment. And it's now in 100 countries with members from preschool through university, about 100,000 active groups, and all the people who've been through that program and who now come and tell me, well, you know, we learned to care about the environment or animals or social issues when we were in Roots and Shoots. Mm. And, I'm, you know, the last uh, question came from somebody who learned about Roots and Shoots in China, and it's all over China now, and there they're telling me, uh, you know, well, yes, of course we care about the environment. We were in Roots and Shoots in primary school. <laughs> you you talked the last time you were on Science Friday a bit with Ira about wanting to instill hope in young people. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, with this, the state of the world in some ways, there's a lot of reasons to not be hopeful. When you go around the world talking with young people, young burgeoning scientists today, do you sense that there's there's hope for the future, not just for animals, but for people too? Well, I think that certainly, you know, my, my greatest reason to hope, and this is what I share, is that the young people, once, once they know what the problems are, and we empower them to take action, to become involved in something they care about, uh, then they're filled with hope because they know that what they're doing is making a difference. And then they know that through our Roots and Shoots Network and other similar groups, Young people all around the world care just like they do. And, you know, I believe we have a window of time to put things right. So that, along with the human brain, our amazing inventiveness, mm -hmm. along with how incredibly resilient nature is, if we give her a chance, even 
places totally destroyed can once again support life and animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance and then there's the indomitable human spirit you know the people who recover from terrible uh, illnesses they cope with disabilities uh, they tackle projects problems that seem insoluble and don't give up and it's really lucky that we have this indomitable spirit you know i'm looking out of my window here in san francisco and it's thick with smoke so when i was coughing earlier it's these terrible wildfires and if if young people give up from things like wildfires and floods and and hurricanes and climate change which actually is real i've seen it for myself and i know that we are a great contributor to it so it's desperately important now more than ever that young people don't lose hope because if you don't have hope mm. you just well why bother to do anything now, I, I do have a question that, because you've been on Science Friday several times over the years, you probably know I'll ask about. Ira wants to make sure we ask you about Yetis or Sasquatch or <laughs> Bigfoot. Um, have we picked up any more clues, any closer to solving the Yeti mystery? Um, we haven't. And, you know, it's so so peculiar. I want to believe there is a creature, with, whether it's a, a Yeti, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's the Yari in Australia or the wild man in China, um, so many people, especially indigenous people. And my best story, which I'll tell very quickly, I went to a place in Ecuador, flew over miles and miles of untouched rainforest, landed with a little community of about 30 people. And in the area, there were six, seven such little communities. And the only communication between them were these hunters who went from village to village with news, like the old minstrels. And so I asked the translator, next time you see one of these hunters, um, please ask them if they've seen a monkey without a tail. That's all I said. And so this guy had no idea where I was, why I was asking. And about six months later, I received a reply that four of the hunters had, and they're all separate from each other, uh, they'd all seen monkeys without tails and they walked upright and they were about six foot tall hmm. <laughs> we're going to keep that's pretty amazing that's, isn't it's, it? it's a pretty amazing finding I'll tell you we're going to keep looking with you Jane Goodall uh, into the future and we're so glad that you were able to join us uh, Dr. Jane Goodall primatologist and founder of the Jane Goodall Institute thank you for joining us today I really appreciate it well thank you for inviting me Jane is the new documentary coming out October 20th. It follows her time in the Gombe. Uh, you can see photos on our website at sciencefriday.com slash Jane. Okay, imagine you're sitting on a train and you overhear a woman sitting behind you saying this. Hi. Hi. What are you looking at? You could probably tell, even without seeing the woman, that she is speaking to a baby, we hope. She's using that high-pitched sing-song cadence that we think of as baby talk. Now, baby talk isn't just some adorable or irritating affectation that we adults acquire when we're around infants. It actually gives babies important acoustical information that they need to begin to process words in our language. But new research out this week suggests there's something else adults are doing when they use baby talk. They change the timbre of their voice as well. Here 
with me to discuss this, and I, I promise it won't be in baby talk, is Elise Piazza, postdoctoral researcher at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute at Princeton University. Uh, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Why don't you explain what timbre is first so people understand what we're talking about? So timbre is generally defined as the unique quality or the tone color of a sound. And it's actually much less understood than pitch or rhythm, but we rely on it constantly to distinguish and enjoy all of the different flavors of sounds around us. So for example, we can easily discern different idiosyncratic celebrity voices, um, like Barry White, who has a famously velvety voice, or Gilbert Gottfried, who has a much na more nasal voice, or maybe Tom Waits with his sort of gravelly growl, even if these three people were all singing the same note with the same rhythm. And if you imagine an orchestra tuning up, they often will all play the same pitch, like A440, but you can still easily pick out the different um, instrument families or textures throughout the orchestra, including the reedy woodwinds, the buzzy brass, the mellow strings, etc. And these are all timbre descriptors. And timbre can also give us the overall gist of sounds mm. in a way that many other features really can't. So research has shown that people can identify the genre and the era of a piece of music quite well in less than half a second. And this is probably because timbre is giving us some clues about the instrumentation and the texture of that music. Uh, I'm John Dankowski. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. And we're talking with researcher Elise Piazza about timbre in, in baby talk. Um, okay, we found that uh, mothers do this regularly during baby talk, of course, dads too. Uh, we've got a clip here of a mother speaking to her baby and then speaking in her normal voice. Um, I'm going to try and guess the timbre differences. First, let's take a listen. Hi. Hi, sweet girl. Hi, what do you see? See a microphone? Yeah? Ooh. And some soundproofing? What's that for? Huh? Anything shiny catches her attention right now. Shiny and bright. Okay, so, so that's a mom and, and a baby. Not just any baby, by the way. A brand new member of the Sci-Fry family, Larkin Scotto, with her mom, Molly, making her radio debut uh, today. So I heard uh, sort of a breathy quality, a quality to this, a breathiness. But what else do you hear in there, Elise? So some of the features of motherese or infant-directed speech that have already been well-documented in the literature, which you can easily hear in that segment, include the much more exaggerated pitch contour. So this sort of swoops up and down. Um, also, the, the overall pitch is much higher, which we think babies tend to prefer. And the repetition in the rhythm is also quite salient. So there are more pauses in the motherese. Um, all of these cues sort of combine to help to highlight the inherent structure in speech. So to help babies to segment this constant stream of noise into the building blocks of language like syllables, words, and sentences. You, you talked about a timbre helping us to get at the gist of sounds. What exactly do you mean by that? So if you take a really quick slice of music, um, you're not getting much information about the rhythmic complexity. So you might not be able to hear the beat structure yet, and you might not know um, which notes or sort of which key center, whether you're, let's say, in a major or a minor mode, just from a second of music. But when you can't, what you can hear are things like the instrumentation, whether we're dealing with... Um, the timbres of a rock band, maybe the sort of percussive sounds and the sort of um, 
guitar timbre as opposed to maybe a more chamber music kind of timbre. And um, similarly with the voice, you can really get a lot of information about someone's identity from pretty short clips of voices, which you might not um, be able to just by you know a single a single note or um, a single uh, piece of rhythm. Well, one of the, the most interesting findings here is about whether or not this happens across all languages. These these qualities of of timbre. What what did you learn about that? Is it just in English or not? So we found statistical commonalities in the exact structure of the shift that generalized across across a very wide variety of languages. So specifically, we tested um, English-speaking mothers as well as mothers who spoke Spanish, Russian, Polish, Hungarian, German, French, Hebrew, Mandarin, and Cantonese, so a wide variety. And we first brought the English-speaking mothers into the lab and we asked them to just speak as they naturally would to their babies while playing with them, while reading them some age-appropriate board books. And then we had them speak to an adult experimenter. And we used a sophisticated machine learning algorithm, which is sort of a form of AI, where we basically designed a, a model of this shift in timbre between infant and adult-directed speech in the English-speaking mothers. And the most remarkable thing was that when we then brought this new group of 12 mothers, also from the central New Jersey area, who spoke this wider range of languages from around the world, the same model that we had devised to discriminate these two modes in the English group generalized immediately to this new group of non-English speakers. Mm -hmm. And we used these rigorous statistical methods to determine that. So, in, for instance, if you train the model just on the English data, yeah. it actually generalizes extremely well to the non-English and vice versa. It's fascinating. I didn't know we could learn this much about baby talk, but I'm, a I'm very appreciative that you took some time with us today. Elise Piazza, postdoctoral researcher at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute at Princeton University. Thanks so much. And for you Bay Area listeners, Andy Minoff and Ella Fetter, the hosts of our Undiscovered podcast, will be joining Mythbuster Adam Savage at the Bay Area Science Festival, October 28th. Get your tickets at sciencefriday.com slash bayarea. Charles Bergquist is our director. Our senior producer is Christopher Intagliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. Our radio intern is Sushmita Patek. Ira will be back next week in New York. I'm John Dankosky. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flato is away. We're talking this hour with Dr. Jane Goodall. There's a beautiful new documentary coming out October 20th called Jane. It follows her time in the Gombe uh, researching chimpanzees. And if you want to ask her questions, 844-724-8255. Let's go to Christine, who's calling from Baltimore. Hello, Christine. You're on Science Friday. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. What's on your mind? Hello, Dr. Hi. I wanted to say hello to Dr. Goodall and commend her on her amazing lifetime body of work. Um, Dr. Goodall, you're one of my childhood heroes. And um, I am an early childhood educator in Baltimore, Maryland. And my question is, I wanted to ask, um, what are the most important things that educators can do to um, really get children involved in the ideas of animal science and animal conservation? Well, I think, you know, one very, very important thing is to try and find out what really interests the child. And if the child totally is interested in mechanics and things like that, then I think the, the important thing is to give them a chance to experience nature, 
And I know some children, you know, don't have the luxury of going out into national parks and things. But there's always some earth and some growing things. And, you know, we used to put a seed uh, behind blotting paper in a damp jar and watch the little roots come out between the damp paper and the glass and see the little shoot come and, and watch snails and how do they walk without legs and, gosh, pop them on the other side of a window and watch that rippling movement. I mean, these things fascinate even children who are uh, not particularly interested in the outdoors. Mm. Uh, Christine, but, thank you so much for your phone call. Thank you very much. I, I want to get to one more quick phone call. Mira is calling from Cambridge. Hi there, Mira. Hi, uh, Dr. Goodall. I'm calling to um, salute you for founding the Roots and Shoots Network that provides a platform for young people, for youth to get involved in environmental action in their communities and also to help animals and people. Um, I had the honor of meeting you in 2008 in China when I worked for Shanghai Roots and Shoots. And after I left um, Shanghai, I took with me um, the program that I worked on called the Eco Audit Program, yeah. in which youth, the youth help businesses reduce their carbon footprint and become more environmentally conscious um, of, you know, in their daily work practices. Mm. And I've since then started it in Delhi, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's uh, soon going to be started in Mumbai. And I want to acknowledge you because through Roots and Shoots, you are the inspiring, um, you know, force for this. And it's been very transform uh, transformative for not only the young people, but also the businesses they interact with mm. on this program. So thank you. And God oh, thank you. Thank you for that. It's, it's, uh, it's a lovely thought. And I think a lot of people who are calling want to uh, maybe have you talk more about the Roots and Shoots program that, that does help so many youth, uh, not just obviously here in America, but around the world. Tell us more about what it's doing right now. Well, Roots and Shoots was begun because uh, when I learned that chimpanzees were decreasing in numbers and forests were vanishing, and I realized that I had to leave the Gombe that I loved and try and help the chimps. And in learning more about the chimps by going to different African countries, I learned more about the problems faced by the people living in poverty without good health and education. And so that began our program to improve the lives of the people. Otherwise, you can't help to conserve nature and animals. And that takes a lot of hard work and it costs money. So I realized then there's not much point in all of this hard work if we're not raising new generations to be better stewards than we've been. And so Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in Tanzania in 1991 who were concerned about the way animals were treated, poaching in the national parks, destruction of coral reefs with illegal dynamite fishing, street children, all, all sorts of different things, these 12 students. And we had a, a big meeting with their friends, and Roots and Shoots turned into this program where the main message is each individual matters. Each one of us makes a difference every single day, and we can choose what sort of difference to make. It's, uh, each group chooses themselves. We don't tell them what to do. Three projects to make the world better, to help people, to help animals, 
to help the environment. And it's now in 100 countries with members from preschool through university, about 100,000 active groups, and all the people who've been through that program and who now come and tell me, well, you know, we learned to care about the environment or animals or social issues when we were in Roots and Shoots. Mm. And, I'm, you know, the last uh, question came from somebody who learned about Roots and Shoots in China, and it's all over China now, and there they're telling me, uh, you know, well, yes, of course we care about the environment. We were in Roots and Shoots in primary school. <laughs> you, you talked the last time you were on Science Friday a bit with Ira about wanting to instill hope in young people. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, with the state of the world in some ways, there's a lot of reasons to not be hopeful. When you go around the world talking with young people, young burgeoning scientists today, do you sense that there's there's hope for the future, not just for animals, but for people too? Well, I think that certainly, you know, my, my greatest reason to hope, and this is what I share, is that the young people, once once they know what the problems are, and we empower them to take action, to become involved in something they care about, uh, then they're filled with hope because they know that what they're doing is making a difference. And then they know that through our Roots and Shoots Network and other similar groups, young people all around the world care just like they do. And, you know, I believe we have a window of time to put things right. So that, along with the human brain our amazing inventiveness, Mm. along with how incredibly resilient nature is. If we give her a chance, even places totally destroyed can once again support life. And animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance. And then there's the indomitable human spirit. You know, the people who recover from terrible uh, illnesses, they cope with disabilities, uh, they tackle projects problems that seem insoluble and don't give up. And it's really lucky that we have this indomitable spirit. You know, I'm looking out of my window here in San Francisco, and it's thick with smoke. So when I was coughing earlier, it's these terrible wildfires. And if if young people give up from things like wildfires and floods and, and hurricanes and climate change, which actually is real. I've seen it for myself, and I know that we are a great contributor to it. So it's desperately important now more than ever that young people don't lose hope, because if you don't have hope, Mm. you just, well, why bother to do anything? Now, I, I do have a question that, because you've been on Science Friday several times over the years, you probably know I'll ask about. Ira wants to make sure we ask you about Yetis or Sasquatch or <laughs> Bigfoot. Um, have we picked up any more clues, any closer to solving the Yeti mystery? Um, we haven't. And, you know, it's so so peculiar. I want to believe there is a creature, whether it's a, a Yeti, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's the Yauri in Australia or the wild man in China. Um, so many people, especially indigenous people, and my best story, which I'll tell very quickly, I went to a place in Ecuador, flew over miles and miles of untouched rainforest, landed with a little community of about 30 people, and in the area there were six, seven such little communities, and the only communication between them were these hunters who went from village to village with news, like the old minstrels. And so I asked the 
translator, next time you see one of these hunters, um, please ask them if they've seen a monkey without a tail. That's all I said. And so this guy had no idea where I was, why I was asking. And about six months later, I received a reply that four of the hunters had, and they're all separate from each other, uh, they'd all seen monkeys without tails, and they walked upright, and they were about six foot tall. Mm. <laughs> we're going to keep. That's pretty amazing, that's, isn't it's, it? It's a pretty amazing finding. I will tell you, we're going to keep looking with you, Jane Goodall, uh, into the future. And we're so glad that you were able to join us, uh, Dr. Jane Goodall, primatologist and founder of the Jane Goodall Institute. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Jane is the new documentary coming out October 20th. It follows her time in the Gombe. Uh, you can see photos on our website at sciencefriday.com slash Jane. Okay, imagine you're sitting on a train and you overhear a woman sitting behind you saying this. Hi. Hi. What are you looking at? You could probably tell, even without seeing the woman, that she is speaking to a baby, we hope. She's using that high-pitched sing-song cadence that we think of as baby talk. Now, baby talk isn't just some adorable or irritating affectation that we adults acquire when we're around infants. It actually gives babies important acoustical information that they need to begin to process words in our language. But new research out this week suggests there's something else adults are doing when they use baby talk. They change the timbre of their voice as well. Here with me to discuss this, and I, I promise it won't be in baby talk, is Elise Piazza, postdoctoral researcher at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute at Princeton University. Uh, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Why don't you explain what timbre is first so people understand what we're talking about? So timbre is generally defined as the unique quality or the tone color of a sound. And it's actually much less understood than pitch or rhythm, but we rely on it constantly to distinguish and enjoy all of the different flavors of sounds around us. So for example, we can easily discern different idiosyncratic celebrity voices, um, like Barry White, who has a famously velvety voice, or Gilbert Gottfried, who has a much na more nasal voice, or maybe Tom Waits with his sort of gravelly growl, even if these three people were all singing the same note with the same rhythm. And if you imagine an orchestra tuning up, they often will all play the same pitch, like A440, but you can still easily pick out the different um, instrument families or textures throughout the orchestra, including the reedy woodwinds, the buzzy brass, the mellow strings, etc. And these are all timbre descriptors. And timbre can also give us the overall gist of sounds mm. in a way that many other features really can't. So research has shown that people can identify the genre and the era of a piece of music quite well in less than half a second. And this is probably because timbre is giving us some clues about the instrumentation and the texture of that music. Uh, I'm John Dankosky. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. And we're talking with researcher Elise Piazza about timbre in, in baby talk. Um, okay, we found that uh, mothers do this regularly during baby talk, of course, dads too. Uh, we've got a clip here of a mother speaking to her baby and then speaking in her normal voice. Um, I'm going to try and guess the timbre differences. First, let's take a listen. Hi. Hi, sweet girl. Hi, what do you see? See a microphone? Yeah? Ooh. And some soundproofing? What's that for? Huh? Anything shiny catches her attention. 
right now, shiny and bright. Okay, so, so that's a mom and, and a baby. Not just any baby, by the way. A brand new member of the Sci-Fi family, Larkin Scotto, with her mom, Molly, making her radio debut uh, today. So I heard uh, sort of a breathy quality, a quality to this, a breathiness. But what else do you hear in there, Elise? So some of the features of motherese or infant-directed speech that have already been well-documented in the literature, which you can easily hear in that segment, include the much more exaggerated pitch contour. So this sort of swoops up and down. Um, also, the, the overall pitch is much higher, which we think babies tend to prefer. And the repetition in the rhythm is also quite salient. So there are more pauses in the motherese. Um, all of these cues sort of combine to help to highlight the inherent structure in speech. So to help babies to segment this constant stream of noise into the building blocks of language like syllables, words, and sentences. You, you talked about a timbre helping us to get at the gist of sounds. What exactly do you mean by that? So if you take a really quick slice of music, um, you're not getting much information about the rhythmic complexity. So you might not be able to hear the beat structure yet, and you might not know um, which notes or sort of which key center, whether you're, let's say, in a major or a minor mode, just from a second of music. But when you can't, what you can hear are things like the instrumentation, whether we're dealing with... Um, the timbres of a rock band, maybe the sort of percussive sounds and the sort of um, guitar timbre, as opposed to maybe a more chamber music kind of timbre. And um, similarly with the voice, you can really get a lot of information about someone's identity from pretty short clips of voices, which you might not um, be able to just by you know a single a single note or um, a single uh, piece of rhythm. Well, one of the, the most interesting findings here is about whether or not this happens across all languages, these, these qualities of, of timbre. What, what did you learn about that? Is it just in English or not? So we found statistical commonalities in the exact structure of the shift that generalized across, across a very wide variety of languages. So specifically, we tested um, English-speaking mothers as well as mothers who spoke Spanish, Russian, Polish, Hungarian, German, French, Hebrew, Mandarin, and Cantonese, so a wide variety. And we first brought the English-speaking mothers into the lab, and we asked them to just speak as they naturally would to their babies while playing with them, while reading them some age-appropriate board books, and then we had them speak to an adult experimenter. And we used a sophisticated machine learning algorithm, which is sort of a form of AI, where we basically designed a, a model of this shift in timbre between infant and adult-directed speech in the English-speaking mothers. And the most remarkable thing was that when we then brought this new group of 12 mothers, also from the central New Jersey area, who spoke this wider range of languages from around the world, the same model that we had devised to discriminate these two modes in the English group generalized immediately to this new group of non-English speakers. Mm -hmm. And we used these rigorous statistical methods to determine that. So in, for instance, if you train the model just on the English data, yeah. it actually generalizes extremely well to the non-English and vice versa. It's fascinating. I didn't know we could learn this much about baby talk, but I'm, a I'm very appreciative that you took some time with us today. Elise Piazza, postdoctoral researcher at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute at Princeton University. Thanks so much. 
And for you Bay Area listeners, Andy Minoff and Ella Fetter, the hosts of our Undiscovered podcast, will be joining Mythbuster Adam Savage at the Bay Area Science Festival, October 28th. Get your tickets at sciencefriday.com slash bayarea. Charles Bergquist is our director. Our senior producer is Christopher Intagliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. Our radio intern is Sushmita Patek. Ira will be back next week in New York. I'm John Dankosky.